If you're visiting Trinity this morning, I am your interim pastor, Mike Sharrett, and a number of months ago, we started working through Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. You get an A if you can pronounce without stumbling over Thessalonians. The uh, text is in your bulletin, as is a lengthy outline, if that helps you follow along. Let me read it for us. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For we know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit, to you. I've said repeatedly that this church in Thessalonica was a very healthy body of believers. They loved the Word of God. They loved each other well. We'll see that next week. And they loved Jesus so much they were making him known in robust evangelism in the whole region. But it was by no means perfect. It turns out that some of the believers were reverting back to the sexual norms of their culture. They were disregarding the teaching Paul had given them on God's biblical sexual ethics. And you can kind of hear the kinds of things they might have been thinking. You've heard these from friends and relatives. Everybody's doing it. These are natural desires. God just wants me happy. Your biblical norms feel repressive. And ultimately, only I can decide what I do with my body. It is against these misunderstandings that Paul writes verses 1 through 8. And what he does is he gives us good reasons to embrace God's ethics for sexuality. Good reasons. I'm just going to walk through them. We'll start in verse 1. Here's a good reason for embracing the biblical view of sexual intimate expression. Number one, you thrive abiding by them. Look again at verse 1. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, we urge and ask you in the Lord Jesus, there's a warmth here, a tenderness, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you're doing, there's an encouragement, an affirmation. He says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Notice that Paul starts 
by reminding them that moral purity goes hand in hand with preaching the gospel. What is the good news of the gospel? You have been delivered from the penalty of sin by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have been delivered from the pernicious power of sin through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God saves you from eternal destruction for blessedness. Who most wants your happiness? God does. He made you. He loves you. He knows what's best for you, and he doesn't hide it from you. So that's why Paul is reminding them here in verses 1 and 2, we taught you the ways of God, and he makes it clear he's basically teaching he received from the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly taught the ways of God and himself flawlessly embodied the ways of God. Now, when you take all of that, what Christians are supposed to know and learn and do and be, verse 3 sums it up when Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Wake up tomorrow morning, wonder what God wants you to do. What does God want you to do? He wants you to be sanctified. This is a wonderful Greek word. It comes from the word holy, which means set apart. What's God's will for you? That you would enjoy his work in your life as he possesses you, sets you apart, and works in you by his Holy Spirit, conforming you to the image of Jesus. This is a lifelong progressive activity. God is committed to your absolute welfare, and it means he wants you to become like the most beautiful person in the world, Jesus Christ. You see how wonderful this is? What does God want for you? He says, become like me. There's nothing better than that. So pleasing God not only glorifies him, it is immeasurably good for you. And among other things, Walking in the ways of God, we could say many, many things about that, but among other things, walking in God's ways means experiencing human pleasures the way God designed them. Every good thing you enjoy as a human being comes from the hand of God. He delights to give you pleasure, taste, smell, hearing, sense, Every nerve ending in your body is strategically placed there for a reason. Everything you enjoy comes from God. Look at Psalm 104, 28. When you open your hand, we're filled with good things. And Psalm 145, 16. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. In the history of your personal life, to any extent you have experienced human pleasure, it's because God delighted graciously, mercifully, in his immeasurable goodness to open his hand and give you that pleasure. Think with me for a moment. When your heart really believes that, when you really believe every good thing comes from the gracious hand of God, what will your heart be filled with? Awe adoration, gratitude, and humility. 
humility expressing itself in a concerted care to use God's gifts, use and enjoy these pleasures on his terms, not your own. See that? When you really believe the source of all these good things, you will humbly be diligent, strive to use and enjoy these gifts of pleasure, not on your terms, but on God's, including physical, sexual intimacy. It's God's gift. He invented it. God loves sexual intimacy. He made it. It's his idea. And he gave it a context. Heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. And you know that from the Bible. I'll show you in a minute. But you also know it from the word Paul uses in verse 3 where he says, I want you to abstain from, your English translation says sexual immorality. It's one Greek word, porneia. And the word porneia referred to any type of sexual activity outside of a man and a woman in marriage. God made sex. He delighted to give this gift for one context, a marriage between a man and a woman, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's the design of marriage. When Jesus defends biblical teaching against divorce, he stands on this verse. This was the way it was from the beginning. A man and a woman come together, they form a marriage union, and they enjoy this amazing gift of God. Now, you may be thinking, okay, I'm not sure I believe in God, but I believe in sex. Fair enough. Let me invite you to consider this. Every pleasure God gives you is for your good, but it's not necessarily an end in itself. It turns out that God wants you to know that physical sexual intimacy, that which you crave and you seek, is actually just a taste of the greater pleasure of being in the presence of God. Say that again. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Every pleasure, but especially this design of God, the pleasure of sexual intimacy, is a pointer to a greater pleasure, the very presence of God. And here's the point. When you don't know God, that part of you built for God will find the next best thing to try to enjoy. So I want you to think of God giving you this gift of sexual pleasure as a sign. You come to it, but you don't stop because the sign says, this way to paradise. Keep going. There is something better than sexual pleasure and intimacy. It's the presence of God. The God who says of himself in Psalm 1611, in God's presence, there's fullness of joy at his right hand, pleasures forever. And that's why David calls, King David calls God his exceeding joy. It far exceeds, and he experienced this pleasure on steroids. So did his son Solomon. Solomon had everything you could want and tons and tons of it. And Solomon said this, 
nothing I desire compares with you. Nothing I desire compares with you. That's the first point. What is Paul doing? He is correcting misunderstandings about the use of God's good gift, and he's giving you sort of a 2020 perspective in these verses so that you come to appreciate God's design for biblical ethics. Here's a second good reason. You hurt yourself not abiding by them. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Looks like a self-control thing. I'm almost tempted to preach on self-control as a fruit of the Spirit next week. I won't. But look, what's the point? If God's will is good for you, then not walking in God's will is it's bad for you. And God's will is no, is to abstain from porneia, sexual immorality. There's assumption underneath, underneath this. It's fairly obvious, but I want to point it out anyway, and that is this. Sex is not discovered. It's created. So if you just think for a moment about human anatomy, does this look like the product of billions and billions of years of the chance co-location of atoms in an impersonal universe? Does it look that way to you? It doesn't to me. It looks like the invention of a good, kind, committed-to-human-pleasure God. And the point is, if you didn't invent it, you would do well to find out what the inventor says about the best use of it. That's the point. See, the Bible gives you a worldview that when you, your life comports with the way God has wired the world, you thrive You never hurt yourself disobeying God. Never. There's no better place for your soul than than seeking to conform your actions, attitudes, thoughts to the blessed, precious will of God. And this worldview basically says when your life comports to the way God has wired reality, you'll you'll do well. When it doesn't, you're going to hurt yourself. And it's no more clear than in the book of Proverbs, which is very concerned about the way God has morally ordered his world. Look at Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man carry fire in his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? What's Paul appealing, excuse me, what's Solomon appealing to? The natural laws of the universe. You're going to burn yourself if you take fire into your clothes. But he segues immediately to the morality of sexuality. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and disgrace will not be wiped away. Just think of it this way. In its right context, a marriage between a man and a woman, sex is like a fire in a fireplace. So helpful, so productive, so enjoyable. Heats the house. It's aesthetically beautiful. Maybe you cook over it. Fire in a fireplace is wonderful. Move that same fire into the living room, and what happens? The house is destroyed. That's what what this Word of God is saying. Third, good reason to embrace the biblical view of sexuality. If you don't, you contradict your profession of faith. So Paul says, I want you to control your body, and then verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles 
who do not know God. Do you see the two things Paul contrasts? Living according to your passions or knowing God. And isn't he saying, if you don't know God, all that's left to live for is your passions. And it turns out those passions rule you. Because whatever you desire most at any given time, you will pursue that thing. That's lust. That's passion. Whatever you, it could be a good thing you desire. Whatever you happen to desire at any given time, that's the thing you're going to live for, and it will rule you. And Paul sets that in contrast to knowing God. And here's the beauty. If you know God, you're free to bring your desires under the rule of his wonderful design. I personally find this so helpful because it's tempting to think that what I'm passionate about, what I desire, that defines me. Oh, no, it doesn't. What defines you and me is the image of God. The image of God determines your identity and frames sexual expression, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So how do you know whether what you desire will ultimately prove self-destructive or life-giving? How do you know? If that desire is born out of the image of God. I have lots of desires that if I act on them, will be a denial of the image of God. God, by his Holy Spirit, will give you desires. When you act on them, what happens? You're reflecting the image of God. You're reflecting his righteousness. Beloved, your desires don't define you. The image of God does, whether or not you believe in God or not. Isn't that helpful? That gives you a litmus test to know whether this thing is really the true you. No, the true you is you're made in God's image. We are given this amazing privilege of mirroring back to him something of his holy righteousness. Fourth, good reason to embrace biblical sexual ethics. If you don't, you hurt another believer. Paul says in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So what stands behind this idea of sexual self-control for the sake of another. That, that's what he's talking about. Controlling your urges is, is, is safeguarding you from hurting another person. What stands behind that? The promoting, preserving, life-giving law of God. God gives us law for your good, Think of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet. When I'm desiring somebody else's spouse, or I'm engaging in some sort of sexual activity that is apart from my marriage, I'm in some way violating those commandments. Those are given to safeguard your wife, her, his husband. They're given to safeguard you to protect human life in the way God's designed it. I think that our struggle with pornography, and it's a pernicious struggle in our culture, in the churches, I think our struggle with pornography is ultimately about these commandments, obviously, and particularly stealing. If you're young and you're not married, you're stealing a kind of purity from your future spouse. 
If you're married, you're stealing affection and intensity that you owe your spouse. So, beloved, if this is a struggle, find a friend, find a confidant, get it out in the open, talk about it, seek prayer, seek a pastor or an elder, a deacon, someone you trust, get it out there and, and, and bring into it Christian fellowship to help you with the struggle. Number five, see, this is the corrective lens to wrong thinking about uh, sexual immorality. The fifth good reason is you face the Lord's displeasure, engaging in pornea. Verse eight, therefore, who, whoever disregards this disregards, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The word disregard is quite strong in the original. It means to spurn, to despise, and to refuse. Do you see Paul's reasoning? If the call to be sanctified is the call to be like whom? To be like Christ. Then to choose self-indulgent, self-gratifying lust over sanctification is to choose something far inferior to God himself. It's spurning God. It's saying, I'm not interested in becoming like the most beautiful person in the world, Jesus Christ. And that would have to be the highest form of cosmic treason. I know better than God how to satisfy, satisfy my own desires. It's not only treason, it's really insanity, isn't it? So, beloved, what should God do when people despise him. He should avenge it. That's what Paul's saying. He should avenge it. Here's the sober promise. Verse six, the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul did his homework. He preached the gospel. He preached sexual ethics. He warned them. There are consequences that the Lord avenges this. What does that look like? I don't know. I don't know. I just know my own heart. The warning should suffice. Last thing, last good reason to wholeheartedly embrace the biblical view of sexual ethics. Your body isn't your own. Verse seven, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, beloved, when Paul talks about calling, receiving the Holy Spirit, and holiness, he is indicating the fact that followers of Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and therefore are God's own possession. I'm aware in our culture of a very popular way of thinking, which is this. I can do whatever I want with my body. And that's compelling to some extent. If you think that, may I invite you into the biblical perspective on that sentiment. I can do whatever I want with my body. I would counter that sentiment with these three facts. Number one, in creation, your body belongs to God. So just out of curiosity, how many of you had anything to do with designing the human body? Um, those of you listening out there in Radio Land, no one raised their hand. You had nothing to do with designing the human body? 
No. How many of you had anything to do with willing your physical existence? You decided you wanted to exist. Anybody out there? No takers? <laughs> this is a room full of people with integrity. <laughs> You're just admitting the obvious. You had nothing to do with your existence or the design of your body, but who did? God. He wanted you to exist. He created you. He made you in his image. He gave you your body. Isaiah 43, verse 6, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then David gives you this beautiful, intimate look when God was making you, forming you in your mother's womb. He says in Psalm 139, verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Take great satisfaction in the fact God wanted you to exist. And he made you. And he loves what he makes. And he owns what he makes. If God created you, he owns you. It's good. Number two, if you happen to be married, your body belongs to your spouse. It's another dimension. That sounds dangerous to say, doesn't it? Hang on. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Paul writes, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, the temptation to porneia, to find sexual expression, pleasure outside of a husband and wife in a heterosexual lifelong marriage, in light of that temptation, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own, his own husband, her own husband. What's, what's he echoing? Jesus' teaching, the two will leave father and mother and become one flesh. Look what he says next. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you see how Paul has created the scenario that keeps spouses from abusing each other sexually? My attitude towards my wife is, my body is yours. My wife's attitude towards me is, my body is yours. No, I give my body to you as a gift because it's yours. No, I give my body to you because it's yours. How does anybody abuse each other in that scenario? It's just ingenious. So only in marriage, beloved, which is a physical union, a voluntary expression of belonging to the other, only in marriage is sex an expression of oneness, fidelity, and belonging. This is why in 1 Corinthians 6, in another passage, Paul says, if you have sex, casual sex or sex with a, a prostitute, it's a monstrosity. Because you become one physically with someone you are not one with spiritually. We can say more about that. Let's move on and look at the last reason your body doesn't belong to yourself, and that is in salvation, your body belongs to Jesus. Christ died on the cross, beloved, to make you one with him in all that he accomplished. His flawless life putting away the judgment for your sin on the cross and forever cleansing your soul of all sin, including sexual impurity. 
Christ died to make you one in what he accomplished. Realize what he said on the cross. He said, Father, avenge their sins in my body. This body that for 33 years was holy and spotless. Father, for the sake of these filthy sinners, avenge their sins in me. See what love that is? What mercy that is? What grace that is? What invitation that is to find life, hope, cleansing, purity, renewal in Jesus Christ? His cross is his pledge to save you from yourself for himself. And the point is, he saves you and gives you his spirit because he owns your body. He wants to live in your body. (laughs) That's why sexual sin is a sanctification issue. Christ is in you by the Holy Spirit, and therefore you're his. (laughs) You were bought with a price, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6.20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. You're not your own, Christian. Christ rescued it. He'll raise it up on the last day. Basically, Paul's basic for sexual ethics is be who you are. You're indwelt by the Spirit. Christ is in you. Christ owns you. Let every expression of your life reflect that, and you'll never be disappointed. Pray for us. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen.